Hey, agility addicts, or soon to become one, welcome to Startline Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Armour, and I am here to edutain you about the world of dog agility. Join me as I spend time interviewing special guests, share my journey, successes, laughs, and failures. We all start somewhere and we all end up on a start line. My hope is to help you grow in the sport we all love. Episode 43, ready? Hey, agility addicts. I think we all just need to take a deep breath. It's, um, the world is crazy right now, even all the way down to the agility world. And I just want to address some of that and hopefully lift our spirits. And, um, you know, it's a bright, sunny day here, finally, after we had some cold, wet, rainy days in New England. And I want to hopefully show some sunshine or shine some sunshine on life in general, if I can. I do believe my next episode, I actually have a wonderful episode coming up uh, about a product with a veterinarian that I'm excited to share. This one I need to get out first, but then I think I'm going to go in and discuss this episode I'm about to go into has really inspired me to discuss positive reinforcement training and the methodology and how it's made my life better, Um, starting with the fact that my mother used to always call me a negative person. And now feedback from friends and feedback I see on social media would say differently. And I hope that is what I am portraying. And I believe that is how I live my life now. But first off, some of you guys might be like, who is this Kara to be talking about agility and dog training and positive reinforcement, speaking with veterinarians and having this podcast? Because, you know, anyone can just have a podcast. And, um, you know, that's everybody's prerogative. And just to give a little intro as to who I am. I've been working with dogs professionally since 2003. I started a dog walking business with my husband. You know, I learned a lot of things the hard way. I then got into grooming, which I'm going to give a shout out to groomers. I think that is one of the hardest, most difficult jobs I have ever done. And I have absolute respect. And I have also gone further to experience and learn about fear free. And we need to understand just to wrap up about groomers that it is not it is not the groomer's job to train the dog how to accept grooming. It is the owner's responsibility. So I just think that's something important to share about groomers, but I don't want to get too much on that soapbox. I just want to say mad respect for you guys. It's an industry that is hard. It is tough. It is, you know, burnoutable. I know that's not a word, but anyways, I've done grooming, tried that. I had a pet supply store. And exclusively now, I do dog training. I do privates, classes, and I specialize in agility performance, particularly ring stress. Now, we all know my day job. I do the pet first aid and CPR instructor. I sell the course and the online course. That's my day job. But my other day job and evening job is private agility training as well as classes. And so I did get some formal certified training. I didn't just take what I knew about dogs and applied it. I went to the Karen Pryor Academy and I was lucky enough to train under Emma Parsons. And then I also am recently Fear Free certified. And the relevance to this, besides all my, you know, dog knowledge, the relevance to agility and AKC agility and why I joke around and call you guys addicts, because I am actually an addict. I attend 48 weeks a year. That's hard. That's hard to read. (laughs) 48 weeks a year of AKC trials. I have 25 championships between three dogs, 25 agility championships. I also have a confirmation championship. And I didn't start doing agility until 2013. So while others may have been in the sport longer, I'm in it regularly. So 
that just kind of sets the tone and the precedence of where I'm coming from because everybody that speaks, everybody's opinion is always through their specific lens. I'm going to try and be, you know, as broad as I can and as welcoming as I can and understand that there are always zebras that sound like horses. So here we go. There was a catalytic event that most of us do not have specific details on. We've all seen the posts on social media, and some of us may be close to this event. But I don't think anyone but the owner of the dog, their trainer, and veterinarian have any ability to speak on the matter of the dog, the handler, and their journey. What I will say is we as a community owe this handler compassion and respect as we do the judge. The judge deserves both. I think we went off the rails here. Um, you know, there was, again, I have not seen them. This is all just chatter, but there were apparently threats sent to this young handler, which I'm not going to sugarcoat this. That's just disgusting. I think this person needed our help more than our threats. I don't think anybody deserves threats because if something goes seriously wrong, unless they came out there intending to do that, which I think we all can agree they did not, then um, uh, compassion is in order. Because absolutely zero people or dogs want to be in that situation. It, I mean, dogs are pretty darn good at mastering and avoiding conflict. Humans, not so much. <laughs> but no one wanted that to happen. Zero people wanted that to happen. I do believe, and I do have statistics to back up, that it was an outlier event. That contrary to what others have provided opinions about, opinions, it's very unlikely to reoccur. And there are statistics that I'm going to give. The attack is not a symptom of more to come. Just because something bad happens does not mean it's statistically significant. However, if you were in that show at Syracuse, if you attended as an exhibitor, if you were there watching, and that was your first time attending or, you know, one of your few shows, well, I would agree that your opinion of agility is that it's pretty scary. But as discussions have ensued, my former professional arm wrestling friend made a valid point. This was just, this hit home for me. She had been professionally arm wrestling for 12 years and had never seen a broken arm. They obviously trained to prevent that. Safety, same thing with agility. But if you came to this one competition that they had, you would have seen three broken arms. Three broken arms happened at just one competition. Does that mean... Does that statistically and overall mean that arm wrestling is more inherently dangerous overall? Or does that mean on that day, circumstances made the sport appear so? Think on that. Let's use some critical thinking here. But let's get back to agility because I really don't know a lot about arm wrestling. I just thought that point was very valid and takes us a little bit away from agility because a lot of us, like me, are so entrenched in it. So I want to hopefully bring agility back to center. The definition describes that as a state of emotional and spiritual equilibrium. It allows you to be accepting of the good and the bad in life and understand that things are always changing. Let's be more holistic in our view of the agility community. There's good and bad. Not everything will be perfect. We cannot lead towards each, you know, the good or the bad too heavily. We do need to remain centered. We need to accept that things may sometimes be amazing and sometimes not. But as long as events occur more towards center, everything will be okay. This is just like, you know, having friends with different political views. The more we can stay centered, the more we can all get along. There will always be outliers. Dogs that are over aroused, in and out of the ring, reactive dogs, 
nasty reactive people, etc. But the statistics aren't showing that AKC agility events are getting worse. They are not showing that they are getting more dangerous. We aren't getting bit and hiding it. We're not just slapping band-aids on and going about our business. And people are not breaking rules when they ask for space and time. They are preventing incidents and managing situations, and they should be applauded for their efforts to keep everyone safe. All right, I'm going to go further into that. I'm going to list some stats in a minute, but I wanted to really touch upon the overarching theme here. Are AKC agility trials safe? And yes, I am putting AKC before I say agility because that is where I spend 48 weeks a year. And that is the organization where the catalytic event occurred. That is what I train for and teach my students. I am an expert AKC agility exhibitor. I've done UKI and I've attended CPE trials, not as an exhibitor, just to watch students. Um, UKI have done. And like I said before, I have 25 agility championships between three dogs in eight years. You don't get that with the occasional local trial. So let me first jump into why we do agility and who should be doing agility. Then I'll cover other safety issues and what we can do to make AKC agility better. Because the benefit to this discourse is we can make agility better. And of course, a byproduct of that is making it safer. We all have the freedom to make different choices. I choose to work super hard during the week, a lot during the week, so I can escape and enjoy those few seconds in the ring with my dogs on the weekends. I it's, I go there so I can smile. I exercise. It's really, it's, it's my only form. Not really. I, well, yes, it is. Agility pretty much is my only exer exercise, um, which is terrible. I'm going to, I'm saying this out loud, so I fix that. Um, so I go there to exercise, learn, grow decompress, unwind, enjoy dogs getting to run and jump because they love it. I also go there because I get to see all these new products. I'm a big influencer amongst my friends. I make no money, zero money doing any of this, including this podcast. Um, haven't put much, put much effort into it because it is a passion project, but I like to go. I see new products for the well-being of my dogs and me. I found that there's better tape out there than KT tape. Uh, I've learned new fitness exercises or about new supplements. I, all of this. And most of this is to keep my dogs at their very best. And I am working on myself. But if it were not for agility, I would be in a different state, both physically and mentally. So I go to agility trials to feel better and improve both myself and my dogs. And this feeling I get every weekend to me, and this is selfish, is precious. That's that's why I do it. Yes, I'm part of a community, but I do it because it's precious and very meaningful to me. And when I say every weekend, I mean it. I do sprinkle in that I have a full weekend of scent work that I do. Um, and then I, I do random mixed days of scent work. Like I have one coming up in November. I'm going to do a Saturday. So I'm going to try on Friday. I'm going to do scent work on Saturday. I'm going to try on Sunday. And I attend seminars whenever I can on the last remaining, I either teach them or attend them, the last remaining free weekends I have, or I'll sneak in a Friday, or if they have midweek seminars, which I wish more people would do, but of course I'm always online learning. And then I attend the random UKI Friday trial. So when I say that agility is my life, I don't know much, how much clearer I can make that agility is my life. I go on Tuesdays to practice and run the courses that I teach my students, and then I teach Tuesday nights, I teach Wednesday day, I teach, and then I go to class on Wednesday night, and Thursday I actually go to scent work class, or I'm teaching my beginner obedience classes, which I also teach those on Monday nights. So anyways, in general, 
Agility, as I've mentioned before, it's improved my physical health, my mental health, and my ability to have access to more people to grow and learn. It is also a part of my income, right? I can live off of one of my jobs, but because agility is expensive, I have other jobs revolving around agility that allow me to offset the costs of my entries. So I think agility has really done the same thing for my dogs, not necessarily financially, but I firmly believe my Debbie, who's 10 going on 10 and a half, she would not be in the spectacular spectacular shape she is in without agility. Because I'm so concerned and involved with her conditioning and her physical ability and her mental ability, right? I wouldn't do this sport. And I am going to talk about this. I wouldn't do this sport if she didn't enjoy it. I put one of my dogs away because they weren't enjoying it. Again, I have become an expert at, at stress at this point because I've dealt with it with my dogs. And I just firmly believe that my dogs would not be in as good of mental and physical health if it weren't for this sport. So, but if we choose to come to classes and compete, we certainly do have to conform to rules, right? I'm not saying that, oh, I love agility and I'm so selfish, I can do whatever I want. No, there's rules. Most importantly, those that promulgate safety. We can't just move about as we choose. We can't enter the ring when we want. We can't run when we want, right? We have to line up. There's running orders. There's all kinds of things, particularly that the secretaries do to keep us organized. The secretaries, the clubs, there's so much behind the scenes. Again, I will remind everybody to volunteer. Agility is meant to be fun, and it is for some an escape, a place to play with their dogs, to socialize with friends, to have access and meet people from all walks of life. I love that about the dog world. Confirmation, I met people from all walks of life. Agility even broadened that. I think that people I wouldn't have access to maybe in other hobbies because I don't know what other hobbies I would do. I mean, I garden. That's not very social. I, I just think it's, I think it's really cool. The access to people that I have. And uh, sometimes we only have one thing in common. <laughs> that's our love for dogs. And that's okay. But love varies, right? We express it differently. We choose completely different breeds. We have purpose-bred dogs. We choose rescue dogs. We have lots of choices. And we can choose different instructors, handling choices, handling systems. The list is infinite. So, but we all know because of rules and and organization and safety. We can't just show up and hope for the best. Agility in particular is such a multi-layered activity. Not only are we just training dogs, but what I find lots of times in my beginner classes, besides, you know, getting dogs comfortable and confident on equipment, because I think confidence is the most important, uh, we're training our own minds and bodies to move around a course. It is, I have found, and this is my opinion, that if you had any dance skills prior to doing agility, you tend to be a better, more natural, flowy agility handler. That is an opinion. You may disagree with me. All you want on that. I did not have dance skills prior to this. I still cannot dance. But I think I have become, over time, through repetition and reinforcement history, a better handler. But I really do think dance would have helped me. So, um, I did take dance. I just, was, I just wasn't good at it. But anyways, um, so... We're getting ourselves around the course and we have to communicate this timely and effectively and correctly to our dogs whose, by the way, brains, even though we're smart, their brains are processing movement way faster than ours. And according to several studies I read, dogs' brains process visual information at least 25% faster than humans. Just enough to make a television show look like a series of flickering images. So when I tell my students that your dog needs information early, 
I am actually correct on that. Anyway, facts. We came here for some facts. I think Denise Fenzi brought up some good points that in order to, and I stated this earlier, one event cannot statistically or does not statistically make something inherently more dangerous, right? We need, we don't need, but we need other events to show that we're headed this direction. I just listened to uh, the New York Times about the hurricanes and how we have these kind of pop-up or high-intensity hurricanes happening faster and faster, and they have the statistics to show it, they know why, and it's able to be studied. I don't think we can, I'm not saying that it's not going to happen or it definitely isn't going to happen, but we can't take one event out of context and apply that to all agility, that because we had this severe attack that we're headed that direction. So here are some facts. AKC agility is not more dangerous. Surprise. Dog-on-dog -dog bites and dog-on-human bite reports are not statistically increasing. Guys, I went right to source. I went right to the director. I went right to Carrie D. Young because I was already thinking it before Denise had said it, but before we make claims about how this agility is getting more dangerous, we need to substantiate that or not. Um, this is the first report of a dangerous attack on a judge in officially 23 years. That is how long um, Carrie D. Young has either been a rep or the director. And according to her, she has never seen an attack like this reported. Um, that's not to say, I know there was an insinuation that these could happen and we're not reporting it, but I'm just going to say, I, I opinion, but I do not believe that is true. I do not believe judges are getting bit up and not reporting it. So that's just an opinion. Um, there are an average of 30 AKC agility trials per weekend across the U.S. It's less in December, 24 to 25 in December, which has the fewest amount of trials, obviously holidays. There are over 1 million entries per year in AKC agility. Guys, I think we're doing pretty good. I think we're doing pretty good. A rule already exists for judges to excuse dogs that leave work. I know that was a, a big point brought up that if dogs leave work, they should be excused. And judges have that prerogative to choose to do that. Chapter 1, Section 24, pages 18 and 19. In the AKC agility regulations, particularly under judges' responsibilities, let me read, and I quote, Judges' responsibility. One, if the dog displays threatening or menacing behavior towards a person in the ring, a dog at the start line, a dog or person outside the ring, or leaves the ring and displays these behaviors towards a dog or person outside the ring, the judge must excuse the dog from the ring and mark excused in the catalog, stating the reason. This information is to be included in the judge's report to the director of agility. It goes on to discuss attacks. Now, why I chose this, people are saying, well, that doesn't say that if a dog leaves work. Well, threatening or menacing, if, you know, menacing can be defined many different ways and a judge can interpret that however they choose. So I see it as if a dog feel, if a judge feels that a dog is being menacing and not performing their job, they absolutely can excuse them. There is no rule as to when to enter the ring. Let me be clear about that. There is not a rule. There is a guideline set by the judge if they remember to tell you when to come in. Most often I see people ask the judge when they want us to come in. They do the, We'll do this in the briefing. Judge is great. They do their whole um, briefing and then they're human. I'm not blaming any judges. Sometimes it just gets overlooked. Somebody or somebody beats them to the punch and somebody will say, hey, judge, when do you want us in? And again, 
this is up to the judge. It's also up to the course design and the, you know, sensibility of the judge for safety, right? So most often I see people ask and then, you know, when they want us to come in or the gate steward makes a suggestion. I've been to trials where a judge may have forgotten, a exhibitor forgot to ask, and it's now up to the gate steward to decide when is a safe place for people to come in. So, in fact, just this past weekend, a judge said, please come in at number 17. And then they went further to say, if you need more time, just come ask me and that will be fine. I've also seen judges say, no exception, be on the line when the dog in front of you is, on, is taking obstacle 17. This is a guideline, not a rule, and this is completely up to the judge to decide. Can they make exceptions in the lower classes like novice and open? Absolutely. Can they make exceptions for course design that does not permit this? They sure can. All right, so not a rule, but a guideline, because obviously we need to keep the trial running. But I'm going to get further into that because I, I do have quite a bit to say about that. All right, so another fact. You can Google videos on bite sport dogs biting a judge. Does that mean that the sport is inherently danger more dangerous or dangerous than agility? You can also Google confirmation dog. A puppy actually bites a judge in the face. Is confirmation more dangerous? We need statistics to say we cannot base the safety off of one incident or video. Do you post as many good runs as you do bad runs? So if you're only posting good runs, are you only a good handler? If you only post bad runs, are you only a bad handler? I'm just saying we need a more complete picture to meet making judgment calls like that. So I want to start off with, not start off, I know I'm into this already, but I want to dig into what is AKC Agility? And again, focusing on AKC Agility, if you guys want to read what UKI Agility is and CPE Agility is and USDAA and NADAC and all those others, by all means have at it. But because I am an expert at AKC Agility, I'm going to read their description for the sport. So Imagine a look of determination on your dog's face as he runs hard, nimbly making each turn. He keeps his eyes on you while scampering through tunnels, jumping over hurdles, and beaming with pride. The crowds in the, stand, the, crowds in the stands cheer as you move together in perfect harmony. That's the sport of agility. It can be quite a rush, and one of the best ways to create an even deeper connection between you and your dog. Agility is a growing dog sport in the United States, with over 1 million entries to the AKC program each year. Dogs race against the clock as they navigate an obstacle course with strong concentration and speed. Whether you just want to have fun exercising with your dog or want to go further and enter an agility competition, get ready for a fast-paced, rewarding experience that will get you and your dog in the best shape of your lives. Hmm, that, that fits my bill. Agility is an AKC companion event. It's open to all dogs, whether purebred or mixed breed. Those are the AKC words and descriptions of AKC agility, okay? I don't think we need to take that out of context or twist that. I think it has been, but I think we need to keep that as the forefront. So that's pretty welcoming, as it should be. But we all know the truth. Going from reading that description to your first trial alone is daunting. The months and years of training for you and your dog and the knowledge needed to know how to nav navigate a trial. That's not something that's taught as much as it should be. I do see some facilities that are popping up and, um, you know, offering these. And that's something I'm going to get into later. But there's a lot of layers to agility, right? There's a lot of layers. There's the training for the ability to get around a course. Then there's the training, you know, learning how to navigate a trial. 
and everything in between. And there are so many layers. Plus, you add in goals. You know, do you want to just get your novice title? I've met many people that just come in and they just want to get their novice title. Do you want to be world team candidate? That's cool. That's, you know, have at it. Do you want to just be the first in your breed to get a mock or get an AGCH, Agility Grand Championship? Those, your goals are your goals. There's absolutely zero people to say what you can and cannot do and what you can and cannot set for goals, right? Because every journey is different. So, because every journey is different, I don't think we can impose a one-size-fits-all behavioral expectation on every single exhibitor. I've trialed in 11 different states, and each region has its own different way of doing things. Certain behaviors are tolerated, certain behaviors are not. I'm not one there to pass judgment. As long as I'm safe, and my dog is safe, and everybody else is safe, I don't have, you know, a dog biting my dog's face or my face or a dog biting me. I think we're doing pretty good, right? Are there excited and aroused dogs? Absolutely. Are there dogs that need to be calm at the start line because otherwise they get over aroused? Absolutely, right? But every time I walk into a trial in Ohio or invitationals in Florida, I have to get my bearings, right? It's not only just figuring out the people and the teams that are there. I've got to figure out where I can potty my dog, how and when I can go to the line, where I can leave treats, which I don't use for most of my dogs, but I do now for Wendy. I mean, the list goes on. Every time I walk into a new environment, I have to get my bearings. And each environment, they call things differently. There's worker herders, worker coordinator. They say scribe sheets, gate sheets. There's, I've heard different words. I just can't think of them, but uh, go in the regional different regional differences episode because we definitely covered that. That was a, a lot of fun to do. But my point is, I do think training has expanded, much like the sport, but I don't think everyone has access to or should have to have a certain level of training to try. The dog has to be able to complete obstacles. That's that's kind of a, a baseline. We know that. But experienced handlers are setting these expectations on novice teams that are unattainable without years of experience. They don't have reinforcement history and are basically saying you don't belong there. There has to be a balance where new people can feel welcome to come and learn while at the same time, reasonable expectations are set to maintain safety. Right? You can't bring an unruly dog off the street that has no leash manners or whatever and just slap them around a course. Come on, we all know that. But some of these behaviors that are, you know, outlined or expected, this, you know, come to the gate and walk. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've got to get my dogs riled up before I run. I am very specific and particular about where I do it, right? I'm not tugging with my dog or doing little, you know, feety grabs. My dog's like little feety grabs. It's a long story. Anyways, I don't do that when there's dog right on line. I wait for the dog to leave line, right? You've seen this past weekend, a lot of people got to see because it because it was a super tight space. I went over in this little corner and I like to call my dog up. She likes to jump into my arms. That tells me that's, you know, part of her start button behavior. All of these things, but I am very cautious to make sure they don't upset anyone else. Does my dog sometimes bark? Yup. Are there a lot of barking dogs there? Yup. No rule about it. This isn't obedience. There is no rule. I know barking can be very frustrating to some people, particularly gate stewards. And I know it's tough if you have a dog that you're trying to keep on low arousal, but this is part of the game. You, it, it, There's nobody said that an agility environment should and has to be this quiet place. You know, there's some dogs that literally bark their entire run. Who am I to judge, right? I personally would not enjoy that, but that's their prerogative, their teamwork, and that's what they've established, okay? There's no rule against it either, just to be clear. So while arousal does play a massive role in agility, and arousal can be generalized, 
Often for many, it only occurs in the context of agility. So most of us work full-time, full-time jobs, right? And so training to generalize arousal outside of an agility trial is hard. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. Of course, utopian society, we would all train and generalize and our dogs would walk into a trial and be so bomb-proof, the world would be perfect. That's ideal, but that's not realistic for many people. This is a hobby sport for a lot of people. If you're a world team, I think there's different expectations set on you. And I just think that we need to be a little bit more understanding. I, I mean, it's okay to train at a trial. I don't know who said it's not. Even if you have the time, any trainer teaching or doing so will admit that it is a process that does require knowing some dog behavior. You got to know what to look for, what to reward. And there's a lot of online classes, but unless you've got that instructor right there with you, going to the park with you and, and really training for that arousal, it's just, it's hard. It's time consuming and hard. I'm not saying, I mean, please go do it. Please take all the seminars that you can to learn how to modulate arousal for your dog. But training in a trial environment for certain teams can be an option. And of course, as long as safety is number one. I'm not saying take your overaroused dog that, you know, nips and snaps and brings them into the ring. No. We have lines. Let's, there's common sense here. And I know common sense these days is lacking. But that's why I'm on here to be pretty clear about what's okay and what's not. But we've got to reach a balance, the expectations that people can modulate arousal outside at a park during the day when they're working nine to five and they barely have time to get home and exercise their dog is just not reasonable. So I've had the opposite of arousal for most of my dogs. So I don't have a dog that gets over aroused um, and excitable and uh, maniacal. I, I don't have those issues. I know other people do. And I help, I help work with them. And, you know, you could call that stressing up. I know stress and arousal are different. I don't want to get into the drive and arousal and how agility people mix it up. And that's a common misnomer and all that fun stuff. But what I do want to talk about is trial stress as its own thing, right? Trial stress has been my bugaboo with all of my dogs. And I was able to do some outside of the ring training for it, of course. But for obtainable ideas that you can even do in your weekly classes, go back and listen to episode 33 and 35 because there's a lot you can get done in the, tr you know, sterile training environment. But I admittedly did a lot of work inside the ring. I did. I did happy loops. I did calming signals on the start line. I was yawning, massaging, changing how I interacted with my dogs at the start line. I did a lot of stuff thanks to good guidance and great mentors. And there's a slew of things that you can do at a trial to mitigate and modulate stress and arousal. Okay, a trial is a place that we can train safely as long as we don't bother other people. All right. So speaking of arousal, particularly dogs in close quarters, waiting or having just done an arousing activity, let's discuss management. Managing a dog through a tight space doesn't always mean the dog is untrained. In fact, it can be part of someone's training protocol. Management is part of dog training. It could mean that the handler doesn't trust the other handlers around the area. It could mean that while the handler has a fluent behavior to walk through that tight of a space loaded with dogs, they just don't want to bank on it. They'd rather play it safe and magnet hand their dog through the line. What's wrong with that? It could absolutely mean that their behaviorist told them to do this, right? We don't know people's journey. We don't know who they're training with or at all. Unless they're your best friend, you're like, what are you doing? You know, that's silly. Fine, if you know the backstory. But otherwise, if you see a team quietly walking through with a magnet hand on their dog full of cookies, 
What's the problem? They're managing the likelihood. They're reducing the likelihood of an altercation happening by even greater statistics. All right. So I personally say manage the hell out of your dogs. Have a blast. If that's what gets you through and keeps us all safe, I am down for it because a behaviorist could have suggested that you manage to reduce the need to expose the dog to that situation where it could fail. But it even might be unlikely to. I'd much rather walk my dog through an agility lineup than at a pet call or even bring my dog to the first night of my beginner obedience class. My beginner obedience classes are lovely, but these dogs range in age from six months to five years. Somebody can rescue a dog and they sign up for a class because they're a responsible pet owner and they come in and they have zero idea that this dog is reactive. We find out on that first night. That or Petco, where again, somebody could have just picked up their dog or you've never been to a Petco before. You find out there that that dog is reactive. I can control and manage my dog better if I can manage my dog. I'm not going to put my dog in those situations. I actually trust an agility trial way more than a Petco or my beginner obedience class. And that's not to disparage me as a trainer. I'm talking first night when they all walk in and we have no idea what they have because I ask people and they literally could have gotten the dog a week or less ago. So I have no idea. So it's not to say my dogs aren't very well trained. It's that many of those dogs are now, like I said, new to the owners or they have no idea that their dog is reactive. Most agility exhibitors have an idea of how their dog is in the context of agility and less brand spanking new, but they have been to a smaller version called a class. I trust them more than the general public, no matter how well-trained my dog is. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about management outside of agility. I have some kick-ass recalls. I'm not going to lie. My dog's recalls are pretty darn solid. It's behavior. Am I going to say 100%? Nope. I'm not going to go that far. Mm -mm. But I am super proud of them. <laughs> so just a couple of days ago, we took my pack to a large field. We're trying to avoid the ticks or avoiding some of the woods. And we just approached the upper field and we saw a group of kids running practice for cross country. Now, my dogs love kids, love them, like genuinely, genuinely love little kid fingers perusing their body. It's one of their favorite things. Their boxers, they come out of the womb that way. But we leashed up our dogs to manage the practice of unwanted behavior. I do trust the recall. I believe I could have called them off the kids, but I wasn't in the mood to test it. I was tired. I was trying to get them out. I just, I, I wasn't in the mood, right? A leash is a management scenario for me that is like no fail. I mean, theoretically, somebody could tug my, the leash out of my hand and there's still options for failure. It's still not foolproof, but it statistically reduces their ability to get away from me. I wanted the best case scenario. And if management makes my dogs have less of a chance to fail, then I will default to it. One of the top handlers at our local trials has a reactive dog. I have never seen this dog react, and the handler does manage this dog very nicely. What harm is this team doing to anyone if in 10 years or more, or I or anyone else I have ever spoken to has never seen this dog react? I don't understand why fluency and perfection are being expected when we have novice and experienced people when we all know behavior isn't perfect. These are apex predators, and this is a hobby sport. Okay? We're not all pros. We're not all world team candidates. We're not all behaviorists. We're not all behavioral consultants. And we're not all dog trainers. To a degree, we could argue that we are dog trainers for a specific dog to perform the behaviors. But let's go as far as to say we're not all professional dog trainers. I encourage the community to be more open-minded to the different levels each team may be functioning at and never assume what journey they are on. 
If you see a team struggling, ask if they need help. If someone asks for space, give it. It is not hard. I am sick and tired of being told that, not sick and tired because it's relatively new, but to hear that asking for space or time is such a rotten bad thing when it's just another element of management and protection. Again, it doesn't mean that the dog is untrained. My recall is fantastic, but sometimes I put my dog on a leash because I don't, I want to reduce any, any possibility of, fa of failure, even though my dog's recall is so solid. Your dog, your dog could never have an issue in the ring. You could just be paranoid. Your dog could be reactive outside of the ring to one dog or one situation, and you are so afraid, particularly now, that your dog's going to react, that you ask for space and time. And if this is not specifically denounced by the judge, you are doing no wrong. But if you are asking for space and time, trying to walk around a trial, I believe you have every right to do that. I've watched several successful teams navigate tough situations. For example, a dog I was told reactive, although never saw, again, this was another one. These people were very communicative. They would have two people help navigate a tight space we have at this one local facility. One handler would be at the bottom of the stairs with the dog, managed on magnet hand, while their partner went to the top to clear the path for the dog to come through. And they were super nice about it. Like, they asked so kindly that you, you, were, you took joy in helping them. They did this every trial and there was never an issue. I wish more people took the second it takes to, to make sure that space is clear. The flip side is, I wish more people were aware of where their dogs are standing and having a conversation. I'm trying to get up the top of stairs. Sometimes I'm lazy. I bring all three of mine. I don't need eye contact to happen. I don't need my dogs to have the stress of passing way too close to a dog they don't need to pass that close to, right? Dog passing may need a bit more space. There's an interesting perspective brought up that I, I saw on social media. Are people asking, is it people that are asking for space or are some people taking up too much? So think about that. If you have somebody in a conversation with their dog at the, six, at the end of their six foot leash at the top of the stairs, are they taking too much space or are you asking for too much to ask for some space to get by? I thought that was a really interesting concept. So I don't have an answer to that. I think it's kind of both. Again, a balance. We need to be more aware of how much space we're taking up and we need to be more aware of how much space we're asking for. <sighs> Anyways, I think we can do better in our awareness of space for sure. But I have zero issue with giving space. I really, no trial I've ever been to ran too long because a few teams needed a few seconds to get their dogs in. It really isn't that many because there is this kind of negative connotation with doing it. And particularly if the judges state that you can't do it, you can't do it. That's that falls on you. You have to have alternatives. And these same teams that have asked for space, they go in and they do it. And I haven't seen an issue. And there's teams that don't ask for space. And I have had dogs rush mine. I have been extremely lucky and it hasn't been an issue. In fact, it gets some of my dogs excited and they run better. <laughs> so again, I know that can be detrimental to some teams and no dog should ever run over to another dog. Other dogs, it's rare. I'll start trying to collect statistics. It'll be very regional, but I don't think, you know, is this something that I could say happens at every trial? Once every trial, does a dog run over to another? Yep. I could say that. I could say from my experience, I do see that. I would also say very rarely, if ever, I can't even think of, I'll have to go back, but I can't think of a, an aggressive approach. I can't. 
I can't. Maybe menacing. I'll give it that. But mostly it's curiosity. I need to smell your butt. I want to smell your butt right now. That's that's what I've seen. But again, this is, I'm not in a different region. I, you know, stick to the Northeast primarily, but I travel out to the Midwest and I go South. So from what I've seen and the places I've gone, but my, that's an opinion, right? That's not statistics. I see teams go in all the time in the ring with another dog and there's no problem. I also see, you know, we're talking about taking up too much time. Okay, well, I see somebody go in on time and the leash gets caught on, you know, their Sheltie's fur or a piece of cheese falls out of the rough of their dog and they have to go pick that up or they set their dog up and then they go back because they're working start line behavior. I mean, we, we can't say that if your dog is untrained and can't go in the ring as another dog, that you're taking up more time. I, there's so many other ways that time gets taken up that we could talk about human behavior more than we need to talk about dog behavior, which I know the human behavior of the untrained dog. I know all that. My point being, it balances out, right, guys? It balances out. Now, if we have too many teams asking for time and space, that sets us off center. It, it, the scale goes too far one direction. Again, I have not seen that. I, if that's happening in other places, then certainly those people need to, you know, reassess either they need to trust their comrades more or, you know, they need to, they do need to train. Um, but again, making exceptions for a few, I'm fine with it. It's good. All right. So enough people come in on time that the people that need space can have it, right? So we seem to be in that balance again in my area. But we're compromising, whether we know it or not, and doing a great job. Keep it up. I'll keep coming in early for my fellow teams that need that time because maybe they will clear the top of the stairs for me so I can get my pack by. It's it's a beautiful compromise. I think we're doing a great job on it. I actually wanted to point that out and say, good job. Anyways, I think what might be the most helpful is a podcast and class, which I've got this in the works, on how to trial and what to expect. There's a local facility that does this. I'm not exactly certain who teaches it, but again, I will specifically do an AKC. I'll certainly do a podcast on it. I've already touched about kind of the trials and tribulations of trials, which covers some of that, but I will, you know, I'm inspired to work on this and I will start collecting video footage, right? I'm gonna, you know, getting to a trial, setting up, creating space, suggestions, coming out of the crate, crate to gate, best practices, lining up, when things go wrong. Entering the ring, setting up, exiting the ring, heading back to the to the crate, relief walks, unwinding, right? All the rules of the facility, making sure you read the confirmation, all that fun stuff that sets you up for success. So you won't get yelled at for walking in the industrial complex that you're not supposed to walk in because they told us that in the confirmation and in every briefing, right? I see people do that. It's like, come on, guys. So that, that's something that's in the works. But just this weekend, I had a student very upset. So this information has come out. And I have a lot of people that are on edge and very upset. And my student was one of them. A handler team got into their space in an already small spaced area. My student was hesitant to ask for the space as now it has become an issue with the current dialogue. And now everyone's scared to ask for room. Therefore, their dog stressed on the start line and their run was unpleasant. Now, they did still cue and they did still receive their title. I tried to make them aware of that, that they triumphed over, you know, a stressful situation. But my student was still upset and rightfully so. I told her, look, you need to say clearly to this person that's in the space. So 
This facility is kind of hard to describe. You go into a door into this thin little waiting area where they literally allow one or two dogs, right? So you're in this tiny little hallway with about five dogs. And then you're in this little tiny area right before the ring with another dog. And an open person, somebody just out of novice, had gone too close to my student's dog who doesn't like it. He did not react, but she's very protective of him because he can react. And it just got her all gobbledygooked and got him all blah, blah. And I think we're not comfortable anymore saying, hey, can you give me space? And you could say it nicely. Like, oh, hey, why don't you, can, can you wait over there? I'm next in line. I'm about to head in. And my dog likes to have his little area, right? He's got a bubble. Stay out of my dog's bubble. Because dogs do legit have bubbles. And we're constantly popping them. And so we need to advocate for our dogs. We need to advocate for our team. And we can do this nicely. We can do this with kindness. So don't get upset. Don't be afraid to say things. Please, guys, don't, don't be afraid to say things. I don't want us all just quietly, you know, crying in a corner. Let's work together and make agility fun. Again, please. Hey, agility addicts. I get asked a lot what I do during the day to be able to enjoy my weekends doing agility. And I should share this more often because it's so related and relatable and necessary, particularly for all of us exhibitors that go to these events with our dogs. So I'm the marketing and program director for a pet first aid and CPR course. We have two different options. We have an online course that you can take that is pre-recorded by a board certified emergency veterinary medicine professional, Dr. Bobby Connor. And then we also have an instructor course, which incorporates our board certified veterinarian, as well as our master instructor, Arden Moore, who has a podcast herself that was recognized by Oprah. Anyways, I digress. My point is, I should be sharing with my audience what I do because essentially what I do is help others learn how to save the lives of their pets. I can't just say dogs because we do cover cats, but it's just cat and dog, pet first aid and CPR. It does provide you a certification, but more importantly, it provides you the knowledge and know-how of what to do in an emergency. It is not in the place of veterinary care. It is the bridge before veterinary care. A lot of the decisions and actions that we can take prior to rushing our dogs to the closest emergency center can make a world of difference for our pets and of course our wallet. So I just wanted to share that with you. If you guys are interested, highly, I highly recommend checking it out. You can go to protrainings.com and search the courses and look for pet first aid. You can also go to propethero.com but the big scoop is if you go to check out and buy these awesome courses, when you do and it asks for a discount code, put in start line and you'll get 20% off. Our online course is just $49.95 to get access to a veterinarian to learn all the emergency protocols you would need necessary to help your dog or cat in an emergency. And with that, I want to get back to the show, but I just wanted to give you a little insight as to what I do during the day, and that is help people save pets' lives. Thanks so much, and enjoy the rest of the show. Anyways, I think another way to help this is, and I mean this kindly, assume everyone doesn't know what they are doing. I don't believe, and I could be dead wrong, I don't believe that person was riding up my student's butt because she was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, ruin this exhibitor's run. I don't think the person knew where to go. I don't think the person knew space. That is a great educational opportunity. That doesn't mean that person didn't have a right to be there. 
but that person needed to understand and could have in that moment about space and taking too much of it. Anyways, if you assume that everybody doesn't know, even the experienced people, they get caught chatting and not paying attention to their dog and things can happen. These are benign, but it's usually when you let your guard down. So assume everyone is a novice and we'll all be safer. Assume they need help. And we don't have to do this in a derogative way, guys. We can be nice and say, oh, hi, were you coming down the stairs or were you coming up to someone that's just standing there? That's going to make them go, huh, what? Oh, oh, I'm in the way, right? Theoretically. If that doesn't work, you just say, hey, can I get by? Like, guys, we, this isn't hard. This isn't hard. It, it's not hard. Okay, sorry. Tangent. Okay. But assuming that, assuming that everybody doesn't know, doesn't mean we have to treat everyone like they have no clue. Offer help. Don't give it unsolicited. But ask if they need space. Ask questions. You coming or going? Like I said, are you at the top of the stairs or not? Just ask. We all deserve to be there. Okay. And speaking of deserving to be there, some people at trials may be training for trials at a trial, and that is okay. I said this before. I'm not sure where where we got the idea that you can't bring your 16-week or older dog to a trial, especially one where you are entered with another dog and not work with it. That is a specific AKC rule. 16 weeks or older dogs, unentered dogs, may come to agility trials. There are some safety and common courtesies you will want to perform. Your unentered dog, or any dog that you're training, should never be ringside while dogs are running, right? Only the dogs about to run should be ringside. That dog should not disturb in any way another dog at the trial. That dog should be under control or managed. That dog needs to also follow all the AKC trial ground rules like safe collars. You're not going to bring them on a flexi lead or pinch collar or any of the other things, an e-collar, you're not bringing that uninjured dog to an AKC agility event on trial grounds with those banned forbidden things, okay? Common sense. You should not be clicking or squeaking toys while others are running. Just a few weeks ago, we had somebody squeaking a toy while a friend's dog was in the weave pulse. That was tough, but we have to be conscientious about other people performing. That's not fair. Marking, clicking, outside of the ring. Many of the dogs are clicker trained. <laughs> that dog's like, what am I getting marked for? Huh? What'd I do? Yay, right? Don't do that. Don't be that person. All right. If you want to use the practice jump for your unentered dog, or hey, how about you're in the 24-inch class and they're on eights, and a entered eight-inch comes up, please leave immediately. Come back when it's not in use. You have plenty of time. Don't be that person. Don't see, oh, I'll be done in a second. No, that eight inch person on basics and common sense has every right to be there because they're probably about to run. So just we common sense. I know it's hard. I know, I know. Okay, if crating is tight and you have a dog, it's an unentered dog, could you stack it on top? Or hey, how about this? Can you rotate out your dogs? Can your unentered dog, while not running, go into the car, and your unentered dog start to get used to the trial environment, sights and sounds by being in the crate? I mean, there's lots of ideas. I'm super happy to help with this. But my point is, there are many ways you can safely train your dog at a trial. All of my dogs grew up in a trial. 
and they are contextually sound to them. And I don't think that's an issue. I can walk my dogs and I feel like they have better behaviors at a trial environment than they do in a neighborhood. Right? My dogs are not used to neighborhoods. They do not like other dog tags. And thankfully, most agility dogs do not have dog tags on. And the ones that do, my dogs are used to. So I've created a positive association with those dogs. Have I generalized it? Nope. Nope. Don't need to. I live out in the boonies. I don't need to. It's just, you know, if I'm going to, even when I go to Westminster, it's not an issue. It's one of those things that I have picked my battles. Time is very limited and I'm not going to train my dogs who are reactive to dog tags. Well, one of them to accept dog tags It's not in my repertoire. So, all right. Anyways, I'm sorry. I'm getting, I'm getting hated. Positives. I want to give some great examples. A couple weekends ago, I, oh, this, this person needs, this girl needs a high five. She needs to be raised up. This was a fantastic example. So an unentered dog at a trial came a few weeks ago. It was a young woman. She shows up. She says, hey, I'm novice. My dog is not entered, but I'd love to come and volunteer. She's shown the crating area. There was, there was space. She sets her dog up in a crate, proceeds to spend the next several hours volunteering various jobs. She potties her dog, gets her dog used to the sights and sounds. And then she comes up during the novice walkthrough, brings the dog down to have it measured. She was struggling to do the paperwork while holding her dog, so I offered to hold her dog. I was also secretly working with the dog. She gave me cookies. She said it was okay. This dog was lovely. She deserved to be there. And that was the perfect, perfect example. So hell yes. I thought that was a great example. Come and volunteer and get your dog used to trial environment. Now, here's some smart things to do. If you're new and you don't know how your dog's going to do in the crate, you're going to make a sign. You're either going to print it out or you can make it all fancy with your Cricut or you can handwrite it with a Sharpie that says, if my dog is causing a disturbance or seems upset, please call this number. Have your cell phone on you or text this number. Have your cell phone on you so that strangers can contact you. We do this at Invitationals. Everybody's phone number is on their crate. So if something goes wrong, we can contact that person. I'm just tired of the opinion that untrained dogs should not be at agility trials. Untrained dogs should not be disturbing anyone or dog in an agility trial. But if they come there to run FEO in a game or even just try novice jumpers and the dog leaves work to sniff, they're still allowed to be there. Unless the judge decides that they're menacing or aggressive, they have every right to be there. That handler is there gathering information. I tell my students all the time, look, this is very broad stroke in general. In general, if your dog can make zero mistakes in training or close to none and be confident for at least six months, you might want to sign up for a trial to see where they are in a trial environment, right? Because now we add stress. And I'm not just saying, well, a super strong, a super trained dog wouldn't have stress. Well, yeah, but you do. And your nerves Go right down that leash. And even when you take the leash off, they're still there. Your dog's like, ew, your breath smells terrible. You're giving off these pheromones. You're being icky. I need to get away from this. Or I need to calm this shit down. That's that's another thing that we're going to talk about. So, aggression. Yes, of course. If the dog shows aggression or is menacing, per the AKC regulations, the judge is to excuse the dog, give reason, put it in the catalog, do everything in it by this, the circumstances they are supposed to. Because aggression has no place in agility trials. 100%. The AKC goes as far as to say attacks that cause injury when they define their aggression. 
Yes, injuries can be hard to find. I have had dogs, I've had my dogs get bit and it takes me a little while to find the puncture wound. And sometimes there is none. I know people can also argue that, okay, even if there's not a bite, the dog received emotional injury. But we have to also understand that these are dogs. Some dogs will communicate, get out of my space. Well, I know the accusations of this shrugging it off was brought up. Do we consider things like when a mother dog snaps at a puppy to get out of her face? Is that an act of aggression? Defining aggression as the way that the AKC does is different than all of our definitions of aggression. So dogs say that to each other, get out of my face or get out of my space. Of course, it's our job to do our best to manage to keep our dogs out of other dogs' space. That's why I had this whole discussion about giving space and time and, and not taking so much space. Of course, we can do better there. But I don't think a dog that spats at another dog, yes, people are going to say that's aggression, needs to be excused. It's, we need to evaluate and be like, oh, wow, I must have been too close to you. Jeez, I need to be more conscious of my my presence, my position, and my dog's position. The 48 weeks of trials I attend, I can say I do see this a few times. I'm not gonna lie, right? I do see a dog. I see quick little, mostly 99%, again, my opinion, not a stat, are vocalizations. I do not have the stats on my own dog, but my own dog has lunged for dogs, not even in their space. There are two dogs, one that was staring at them, um, not menacing. I'm just, the dog was sitting on a hill staring at it. My dog lunged for it. Um, another was we were walking by a deaf Dalmatian, which who knows? I, I don't know. I don't know. I can walk by hundreds of dogs. It's never been an issue. Never. So yeah, I've been caught off guard. Uh, I, I don't know, but they're dogs. I don't know if who said what to the other with their eye contact. I missed it. I'm a human. I made a mistake. I didn't see it. I'm not perfect. So <sighs> I, 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 dogs are dogs. Uh, that's not shrugging it off. That's not. I mean, they're, they're literal dogs that would not be in these packs. They wouldn't. But I do know aggression. I've lost dogs to it. To say that we are shrugging it off, that we're shrugging off dogs communicating as aggressive attacks is not fair and it's not helpful. If that line is crossed, the judge and or committee, depending on where the offense happens, will decide that. Is that fair? I think it's the best we have available to control the situation. And guess what? It's been going pretty well for 23 years. We have statistics to back that up. So I want to move away from aggression. I want to discuss something I do see a lot of and do wish we as a community helped each other out with more. Young and older dogs are displaying stress in the ring and it's stress that would lead me to say that the dog in that moment is not happy. Add in the element of time, and I think we are setting our dogs up in an environment that is not happy for them. Let me be clear. This is not for the first or third time in the ring. Stress is expected because we don't all have the luxury of training or knowing how to train for it. Your own ring nerves can send your dog into a mess of calming signals. And yes, baby dogs do act differently than adult dogs. But your baby dog may have trained super well and displayed great behaviors at run-throughs, but you get to a trial and they stop working to sniff. They visit a ring crew because they're young 
and that is new to them. I have an amazing student team that trains way more than they trial. They have been to, I don't know, maybe three trials. They did very well in a loud environment with dirt and four rings and showed up to a local trial with three painted walls and turf. The dog was running great until it noticed the dogs painted on the wall behind the tunnel. So there's like these murals. He froze. He wouldn't move and he was very uncertain of those paintings. The kind judge told the team to grab their leash and if they wanted to, walk the dog over to the wall. The dog clearly felt more comfortable being on leash, walked calmly to the wall, sniffed it, and was fine. My own Debbie wanted to have words with the painted lab. There's a black lab giving side eye on a covered bridge at the same place. And she has 14 pucks and an agility grand champion. And we trial a lot there. We trained through it there at those trials. I wouldn't have known painted walls were an issue. Could I have worked other murals and wall art? Sure. But since I don't care if I can walk her in, a downtown, in downtown Boston near an art mural, this worked just fine for the environment I was expecting her to work in. So what is helpful? What is helpful is if everybody reads Turid Rugas's On Talking Terms with Dogs. It's about calming signals. When our dog drops the sniff, visit ring crew, yawns at the start line, or even rolls in the turf, we assume they are disconnecting, and some of us think our dogs are being delinquents. They are actually communicating, and yes, making themselves feel better, but often trying to calm us down. When a dog slows down, they are not always just lacking confidence in the ring. They could be responding to our rapid heart rate, our constant clapping in their face, and elevated pitch in our voice. The point is, not every dog that leaves work should be excused. This could be an opportunity for us to check our own nerves, yawn, or offer other calming signals to our stressed teammate. Help them create a more positive association in that ring. A great example of this, the Canon Von Bachbet page, which is run by a fellow boxer exhibitor, Sarah, who I know well. She and I have traveled together to many invitationals and Premier Cup, so I know this team inside and outside of the ring. But uh, she put up great examples of Cannon's start to his agility journey and where he is now. And having spent time with that team, I can tell you that dog deserved the time it took to work through leaving task to learning to love it. Cannon loves agility. He broke many records in the boxer world and is so, is so impressive of a dog that I got his niece. So yeah, a little bias there. And she's done similar behaviors, right? As, as have all of my dogs. Debbie wouldn't weave for a year. She sniffed and avoided obstacles. Phoenix, oh my God, don't even get me started. I put her away for two years because I was at a loss. I thought she didn't like agility. Walter, well, Walter was called the Walter Show for a reason. He put on a show, visited ring crew, kidney beaned around the ring. Lord. But I can tell you, each of these dogs loves agility now. I did have to learn with them didn't know what I know now. I wish I did. And a lot of you don't. And I see that in my students. I get frustrated sometimes. And then I remember, this is a journey. And just because I say it doesn't mean they can comprehend or believe it. Okay? I do understand that. Okay. So I know not everybody can hear. And I know a lot of people have to go on the journey themselves. But if we could learn about calming signals, they help us. And I can also calm a dog with calming signals and learn to ask myself the hard question. Is my dog having fun? But these behaviors only displayed in the ring. 
I would not know they would happen or exist without the precious ring time, right? So you can read about calming signals and not have to apply them in training because your dog doesn't show stress. The you know elite trainers out there are going to say, okay, well, you have to modulate stress and, and you... Nobody has time for that, right? Okay, shouldn't say nobody has time for that. The average agility exhibitor that works a full-time job does not have time for that. That doesn't mean that if they don't, you know, modulate their dog's stress, that their dog is going to go bite the judge, right? I don't think we can go to those extremes. You know, I can't say that as a fact, but statistically, that's not generally what happens. What I see, and this is not statistic, this is opinion, but what I see is teams either learn to work through the stress, they never work through the stress, or they leave, right? I do see some teams in Master Excellent, very few, but I do see some teams I'm like, I don't, I'm not sure each part of that equation is having fun. Not gonna lie, I do see that. It makes me sad. To, to those and to others, I ask you to evaluate your journey. Now to everybody beginning, there are some young dogs that don't enjoy that ring stress. I'm, there are certain runs with Wendy that she did not enjoy. Debbie, she didn't enjoy popping those weaves. I mean, it was me. And I put that stress and pressure on her. And once I learned to let go of that and get a different mindset, man, agility is fun. So if you're like, well, I don't know where I am, right? I, 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 I don't know. Ask your trainer. If you don't like your trainer, if you don't like your instructor, or they just, they don't, they don't know, right? It has nothing to do with like or, or what. Find a trusted source. I'm happy to be that trusted source. That person can review videos of your runs, right? I've already been inundated with messages and videos of runs from novice teens petrified. They, they will get excused and their dog will be deemed aggressive. I've told everyone to reach out to their trainers, set timelines for improvement or reduction of the stress and learn how to calm yourself and your dog in the ring. The sport is pointless if you both are not enjoying it. But if you see progress, please celebrate progress. Not every cue is progress. I've had some gross cues that I didn't feel good about, and I've had some amazing end cues that I have celebrated. I celebrated twice this weekend hard. I caused an off-course jump. I did not correct Wendy. I'm going to get into that. Man, I ran that run like you wouldn't believe. And I did the same thing with a standard run. I was one, one tunnel, wrong course tunnel away from a double Q. I didn't care. I, and I, kudos to good friends too, right? I came out of that ring and I was happy. And I didn't have anybody that came to, oh, if she had just taken that tunnel. Nope. First thing out of a friend's mouth was, what a fantastic run. Didn't mention the NQ, didn't mention the wrong course. That's a good friend. That's a good supporter of your journey. Find more people like that, and your journey will improve vastly. If you're finding people that are poo-pooing and coming out and being like, oh, it would have been such a nice run if you would just blah, blah, blah. And I know I'm guilty of that, but I always try and say something nice right when they come out. And if they approach me and ask, I'll say, do you want to know? And I will tell you what went wrong. And the majority of the time, we all know it's us. Anyways, I'll get off that soapbox because that's a whole other one. But my big point is if you, see if you see progress, celebrate it. Don't put everything on the queue. This is where, you know, my friend and mentor started to say, hey, do these happy loops. And I can't tell you, happy loops were the 
best thing for Wendy's confidence. Might not be the best thing for every team, but I have had happier, happy loops than I have cues. I had so much fun. And then I talked about just this past weekend. We did that. I got into the happy loop brain when she missed that thing, when she missed that um, jump. But it's just, you got to have fun. I had zero reason to correct the off course. And this is something else I want to get into. Even if she had read the line wrong, which, let's be honest, is unusual, but more common in younger dogs. So even if she had read the line wrong, I'm not correcting that. No part of me would tell her she was wrong. Why? That breaks her spirit. And this brings me to the only issue I have with AKC novice and open agility. It's that we can tell our dogs they are wrong and still cue. That doesn't mean that we should, but for some, the cue is so important that we overlook our dog's happiness just to get the ribbon. That is where I wish we put more effort in understanding. And this is coming from someone so guilty of this. Only because I have experienced friends and mentors who drilled me after runs where I did that and asked the hard questions. Was that cue worth telling your dog they were wrong? The answer, my friends, is no. So, if your dog misses a jump in novice, what does bringing them back accomplish for their mental health? If your dog blows by the A-frame, what does making a fuss and bringing them back do long term? Are there some circumstances where bringing them back is helpful? Yes. When you want to fix and go, try and handle that differently, start a few obstacles back, change your approach, figure out how you can get that collection you maybe needed because you didn't collect them to get into the polls. I get that. But you can do that without telling your dog they're wrong. You can do that without marking. You can do that. You can just be creative. There are some times where I have faults and I will create a new line and I will celebrate. I'll get back over to where I needed to be and fix that. And the dog had no idea. They thought we were running a course. Then this weekend, my girl Phoenix decided to get creative. I We were off touch. We were off kill. I don't know. She was having a blast, but she was not following me. Maybe I'm going to have to just put it on me. My signals must not have been clear. Most of the time I was able to correct course and just make up something and get back on course. And there was one time my friend laughed. I just couldn't. So I put my finger up and I said, we're done. I just left, right? I made it happy. She was cool. She's like, cool, I get to get my cookies faster. I don't care. So think about that. But there's always ex- exceptions. But if your dog misses an obstacle, I want you to think long and hard about whether you can redo that for the cue without hurting their mental state. That, I think, again, opinion, but experienced opinion, that I think would help reduce some of the stress our dogs face. Because we do that multiple times in each class, like in open and novice, or novice and open, and we can get into excellent, and then we start to see some dogs slowing down, sniffing, or what have you, right? This does not and is not meant to apply to all teams. But if you have noticed a change in the dog that started in novice to a slower, more stressful dog in excellent or masters, consider some happy loops, some calming signals, or other ways that you can combat that stress. And if you have a novice dog or are about to start your journey, I would like to empower the human part of that team to look into communicating calming signals to the canine partner of that team. A happy, less stressed dog, one that stresses up or stresses down, is a happy, more stable, safe dog. That is a teammate who can enjoy the sport because they are not encumbered. All right. 
And there's plenty for the human side, right? I get this a lot and I can help you somewhat, but I'm just going to default and always recommend Julie Bacon's podcast, Mindset Coaching for Handlers. You have got to get in the right mindset. Our minds affect our dogs. Our choices affect our dogs. Our attitudes affect our dogs. You can train to the nines, but if you have a bad attitude, a sad attitude, a wrong it's not going to go right, right? We're there for fun. And this is where I was prompted to do another episode on positive reinforcement training because that alone, learning, studying, and understanding that has made my life and my choices and my outlook better. I just got thanked for being a creating, you know, buddy. I was creating neighbor this weekend, you know, by somebody I respect that's been in the sport a long time. And they said, you always had something good to say about the runs. You have to. Because in reality, even if the run is a disaster, there's still pieces that went well, right? <laughs> your dog made it into the ring, right? Your dog didn't leave and bite the judge. Your dog didn't bite. There's always something good to find from every single run. And I NQ'd all but once, three days with my young girl. And I loved almost every run with her. There was one jumper's run that was like, yeah. But she did some good pieces and I found like she had beautiful weaves. There's always something. Find the good and you will see more good. Focus on that and you will see more of it. If you get in this negative nilly attitude, like my mother called me growing up, it's always a negative child. And I was. I always saw the worst in things. But then when I started seeing that you can apply that to dogs, there's no dogs, there's no point in pointing out when they're wrong. In fact, you empower and enlighten them when you show them what is right and you reinforce that. The world becomes a better place. I don't mean to get so philosophical and deep on you, but that's just where I am right now. That's how I feel. <laughs> so for your mindset, go get help. I can help a little bit, but I highly recommend going to somebody and listening to Julie Bacon and she also offers coaching. So here's the deal. AKC agility is a companion sport as opposed to a performance sport. The heck is the difference? Let me read their descriptions. Companion events. Sorry, sport, event. There's a reason why the phrase, this is directly from the AKC. There's a reason why the phrase man's best friend exists. It describes how much you and your dog complement each other. I love that. The time you spend together and the close relationship you have. That's the foundation behind companion events to demonstrate the deep companionship between you and your dog. In these events, you and your dog train together to demonstrate the bond that forms between a well-trained dog and his owner. That's agility. Performance events, because agility has been, has been compared to these. We love all dogs, but the fact is some breeds are naturally better at performing certain functions than others. Some have innate skills as hunting companions, others assist in herding of livestock, and others serve as guardians of people and property. When you and your dog participate in a performance sport, you show off your dog's superior skills for performing practical functions that come naturally to him. Okay? AKC agility is meant to show how you and your dog complement each other. Running side by side or often tandem front or back with each other in a ring like a well-choreographed dance. You might not be dancing well, but it's supposed to look like a well-choreographed dance. It's to show your companionship and training between you and your dog, the equipment and the environment. 
It is not to display first and foremost your dog's innate skills, but it does play on the game of chase. Never lose sight of the concept that this is a game. While I do believe dog-on-dog aggression to some degree will always be present at dog events, companion events, the statistics are not showing that it is increasing. To assume that this event was not a standalone without the history or journey of this dog is not a fair assumption. A zebra can sound like a horse. The narrative that this incident and our current agility culture is doomed for more like it just doesn't add up. Yep, that one trial will be super scary if it were one of your first trials. Just like the three broken arms at that one competition would make you think arm wrestling is dangerous. But one incident does not allow for statistical significance. We also don't have the details to call this incident a horse. It is also not fair or completely accurate to say that dog-on-dog aggression leads to human-directed aggression, but there are always potential risk factors to consider. Aggressive behavior in dogs can can vary widely depending on the individual dog, its history, and its environment. Redirected, Redirected aggression is a real thing. A human gets in the way of a hit a dog was to take, and that is a real concern. But we have the ability to keep the environment safe and fun, just like volunteering, We each can and should play a part in doing so. I firmly believe, as a community, we are capable of weeding out the unhelpful and the dangerous. I do not believe that we are shrugging this off. I do not believe that the incident that caused this discussion is a symptom of a greater problem, but a chance to recenter and ask ourselves, is agility still fun? For those that messaged me or have been on edge at recent or upcoming trials, I hope you can find peace and understanding that agility is still fun and safe, and you can and should do it with your able-bodied, happy dog. I will offer you space and time and encourage the community to do the same for each other. If you see a team struggling, show them how to make it better instead of pointing out what they are doing wrong. Thank you, my friends. Be safe, have fun, and go play with your dogs.